You don't know how glad I am to be with you. And I'm thankful for the Lord in bringing us together this morning and for these couple of days. I appreciate your elders. Uh, I respect them. And I appreciate their invitation to be with you. And I appreciate the work that they do here. I also want to say that I have a tremendous amount of respect for Steve. And I think even to a young preacher with limited experience and wisdom, it's evident that he's been a good fit with you. And I rejoice in the good work that he's been able to do here with you. And I appreciate your loaning him to us at Jones Road here in a couple of months. Uh, We look forward to having him. We have friends in this county. We have friends all over the world who respect you and your work and who are pleased to hear the things that you do, who support you, who pray for you, and who admire your strength in the Lord. And I'm glad to be with you here for, for just a couple of days and try and do some good. Well, I'm ready to preach to you now, and we want to begin in Joel chapter 2. Let's turn to the prophet Joel chapter 2. You know, in the Old Testament, we have 22 books in which God gives a covenant with His people and performs His part of the covenant. And then we have 17 books in which God is trying to call the people back to Him. 22 and 17. The message in the prophets of all that the prophets do in channeling the Lord's character and the Lord's interest on behalf of the people. And they're pouring their hearts out and trying to get the people to come back to Him. The essence of their message is return. And we want to start by looking in Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Like the people of old and like the prophets of old, there is a continual need for God's people to hear this message of repentance. The call for our renewal of dedication to God and to come to Him not just in the external ways or in superficial ways, but to come to Him genuinely. And the reason that we need lessons like this, the reason we need series like this, is because there is the possibility that even in an assembly like this, here we come, and we come here and we sit, we greet one another, we sing these songs, we pray, we take the bread and the fruit of the vine, and we study, or we lead in these activities. And unbeknownst to anyone else in here, we're leading a double life. And we're hypocrites. And we fall into the besetting sin of mankind in which we think that we can cleanse the outside of the cup and that that's going to be enough. It is the case that there might be some sitting here with us this morning. Heart is not right with the Lord. Maybe there is great doubt in our lives and we've let that doubt become a callus that breaks us off from God in prayer. And we don't pray to Him as we are. We don't read it. We don't seek the relationship with Him. And we're just going through the motions. Just to make people happy. Or maybe we feel a sense of sincerity in what we're doing, but deep within, there is some sin in our lives that we just keep in our pocket. And we just have the kind of sense of surrender to this temptation, and we just think, well, that's just me. That's just my besetting sin. 
and we become then cold to the fact that this is separating us from God. What we want to say this morning is to appeal to you, to return to the Lord. There might also be the fact that there are others who are not here, who used to be sitting among this number. And you know their faces, and you know their heart, and you know that it's not right with the Lord. Maybe something can be said that you might be equipped to encourage them or to share some messages with them that might bring them back. And you know, as we say that, I want to reiterate one of the points that Gary made at the very beginning. You know, it puts me in mind as we're thinking about repentance and the hearts that need to turn back to God. It reminds me of the occasion in which some of the Jews came to Jesus. And they said to him, Lord, have you not heard what Pilate did to some of the Jews who mingled the blood of their sacrifices with their own? As if to say, well, what are you going to do about it? Jesus responds, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When we think about this business of returning to the Lord and repentance, the very first place we need to look is at the person in the mirror and to reflect on our own heart. Now, we will take the time on Tuesday evening, if the Lord wills, to think about how we can make a positive impact on others and restoring them. But what we're thinking about today and tomorrow evening is about self. So I want us to begin by thinking about the motivations that we have and the reasons God has given us to return to Him. And so what we're going to do then in the rest of our time this morning is we want to think about four reasons why we must return and turn our lives around to the Lord if that's what is required of us. The first thing that I want to think about is I want you to consider the impact that you can have on other people for good. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You know, as Paul writes the second letter, it's really a sigh of relief. The first letter that he wrote to this church was very hard. And there were very stern things that Paul said in his rebuke to this church. And in the second letter, he writes to them, once he has gotten the news from Titus, that they have listened, they have repented, and there has been an effort to move back to the Lord. Look at what Paul has to say in chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter." You know, you go through the first letter, and if you were to put together a list of the characteristics and the qualities of this church, they're very different than the qualities that Paul expresses thanks for in these verses. In this first letter, we see a church that was very immature. 
A church that was petty. A church that was divisive. A church that was grasping and ambitious. A church that was immoral and glorying in that. And now Paul is writing about a church that has been humbled. They're contrite. They're sorrowing. But as he notes here, it's a sorrow that is godly. You know, there is a sorrow that of this world that's sorry about the consequences. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I lost face and honor and I was disgraced before others. But that sorrow is only skin deep and it's only world deep. The sorrow that was created within the Corinthians was that they were concerned with what they had done to God and how they had offended God and brought a reproach upon the bride of Christ. And as the prophet Joel says, rend your heart and not your garments. We need to be aware that when we are contemplating repentance and the impact we have on others, we need not lose sight of the fact that our repentance can be skin deep, or we can just ask, well, what do I have to do? And I, if I just do these things, if I come forward, if I confess, if I have this prayer, if I say I'm sorry or have this read, well, that then clears it up and we're done. No, those are outward signs and those things may be necessary, but ultimately what it comes down to is have you rent your heart? And if we do this like the Corinthians, look at the impact it has on others on the entire church. What happens when someone comes up at the end of a service and they say, I have sinned and I've done wrong to myself, to God's people, and first and foremost to Him, and I need your help and your prayers. What happens when someone's willing to do that? Well, it sends a message, and if you are willing to do that when that's necessary, what are you telling other people? Well, maybe you're helping others, and especially those who are younger, to realize that none of us are perfect. And that act can sometimes strip the veneer from the rest of us who are self-righteous. And we reflect upon the fact that, yes, I too am human. And I'm not perfect. And I need to reflect on my relationship with God. But it also helps an entire group to understand the seriousness of sin and the great standard of holiness that that is to be maintained, to be fostered, to be prized above all else. You know something else that happens, and this is true in churches, it's true in marriages, it's true in families, and that is when someone is willing to say, I have been wrong, and I'm sorry, and I want you to forgive me, and I want you to pray that the Lord would forgive me. You know what that does? It fosters a family togetherness, and it strengthens the bond within a congregation. When we rally around one another, and we share tears with one another, and we might share weaknesses now with one another we have not in the past, and we come together and we come to know each other more, and we are reminded of what it is that we're doing here. This is not a social club, and this is not some occasion for me to come weekly and scratch a spiritual itch, and then to go my way. That this is a body, a family. It fosters togetherness and a family bond within the congregation. So if you are listening to this now, and you are aware of the fact that you have sinned, and others are aware of it, think about the impact you can have on others. But before we move on, besides the congregation, I want to tell you about another group or class of people that you can have a great influence on. Let's turn over in our Bibles to Luke chapter 16. 
Luke chapter 16. Start reading together in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there Passed to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. I want to tell you something. If you don't have even concern for your own soul's sake, or for your eternal destination, think about the impact that you have on your family, on your spouse, on your parents, on your siblings. And think about your children as well. And think about the impact that it has on them for them to see you go week after week, day after day, moment by moment, cold and hard-hearted to sin. Think also, on the other hand, of the impact it will have on them if you can humble yourself and you can set aside all thoughts of self-respect and of your honor and of your own sense of self-righteousness, and come to the Lord, and to turn to Him, and to bring forth the fruits of repentance, that can be a decision that hurts now, but echoes throughout eternity for good. And you can impact other souls, and leave behind you a heritage of righteousness. And send the message that our story does not just consist of the moment of the present, that we can change. And just because our past has been dishonorable and sinful and wicked and harmful, that doesn't have to be our future. We can change, and what a powerful lesson that can give to those who are most precious to us on this world. Think about your example to others. As we then turn a little bit more inwardly, I want to think about a second motivation that the Lord has given us for repentance, and that is the nature of the urgency of the gospel. 
Now, there is a sense in which repentance is their priority, no matter what else is going on in our lives. Let's actually turn back in our Bibles to Joel. I want to go back to Joel chapter 2, and I would like to continue reading in the context there. As the prophet is summoning the people to repentance. Notice what he goes on to say, beginning in verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priest who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. Well, we have to understand what the prophet Joel is calling us to be aware of is that there is no priority, there is no moment, there is no pursuit in this life that is more urgent and important than making your heart right with Him. As he calls out to all areas of society, all the people, the elders, the children. It might be that someone hears this call to assemble and they say, now hold on a minute. I am dressed in my wedding clothes. This is my day. That can wait for just a moment. He says, no, you come out of the chamber and you come and gather for repentance. There is nothing more important in our lives than this moment. And the reason is, number one, we are missing out on the great glory and joy of the blessed life. Let's turn together over to Mark chapter 10. Over to Mark chapter 10. Now this is the occasion in which this young man had come and asked the Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he goes away sorrowful. Look at then this exchange that Jesus has with his apostles. If you look down to Mark chapter 10 verse 28, then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You know what this kind of says to me in our setting, in our context here, and that is if your heart has not been right with the Lord and you have put distance between you and the Lord and His people, the Lord's people don't want it, but there has been a wedge driven between you and them. And what you have done is you have exchanged the friendship with the world for the friendship that God has provided that is most precious than anything. Does that not mean anything to you? Have you not gained strength from the people of God? Have you never received encouragement from them? Think about what you are missing out on if you withhold repentance. But there's another, a second danger that the urgency of the gospel imposes upon us. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, let's start reading in verse 7. 
Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Look over a couple of pages to chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. I want to tell you something. If you are listening to this, And there's just the smallest bit and sliver of your heart that's still tender and still feels. And you hear the call of the gospel. And you feel the urgency of the gospel upon you. Don't waste the moment. Don't put it off. Because it may be that there will never again be a time in your life when you feel this way. And if you continually push it aside push it aside, ignore it, block it out of your mind, there will come a point in which you won't even want to hear appeals to you. And if there are those who love you and care about you and they want to come and they just want to help, you will resent that and you'll become arrogant and you'll block them off from you and you may never again have a heart for repentance. And that heart then will ossify and become frozen, stone cold, And nothing that God's Word or His people will ever say or do to turn you back. But in addition to that, there's a third reason the Gospel is urgent. And that is the brevity and the unpredictability of our lives. It reminds me of the occasion which Jesus was teaching. That the abundance of a man's possessions does not define his life and his soul. He told a story about a rich man that had a plentiful crop he said to himself, look, you have plenty for years to come. Let's tear down my old barns. I'm going to build bigger and newer barns and I will fill them. And then I will say to my soul, soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And then the Lord comes to him that night and he says, you fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. Puts me in mind also of what James says in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who, does, who knows to do good and does not do it, 
To him it is sin. You know, this is especially true of those who are a little bit younger, but I think it's also true of anyone of any years in life, and that is, we can kind of have the self-deception that here we are and we're facing our future, and the future is just like never-ending horizons, ever new vistas rolling upon our view, and the life will just kind of continue as we know it. And for some of us, you know, it may be the case that your story has many more years and many more calendars to sift through, but it may not. And it may be that even this day, your life story is done. And it may be that today will be the final chapter, the final paragraph, and the final sentence in the story that you've been writing. And you have to reflect on whether you are at peace with the way that that story ends. And the point that we're trying to make this morning is that you hold that pen in your hand. You have the ability, by the Lord's grace, to make the changes that you need to make. Think about the urgency of the gospel. Now, related to that, but a third and separate point is, it's not just the impact we can have on others and the urgency of the gospel, but think for a moment about the threat of impending and certain judgment of God and the fear that that should create within us. You know, there was an occasion in which the Apostle Paul was talking to a Roman governor. And this Roman governor never heard anything like Paul. And as we read about Felix and Paul reasoning to him about righteousness and the judgment to come, it says that Felix trembled. But he then dismissed Paul and said, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. It may be that you're in the position of Felix in which you have been procrastinating and is putting off for the right day and the right set of circumstances to where you can come to God on your own terms. But what we have to learn from the example of Felix is that judgment and its impending doom should terrify us to action, not just to outward trembling. Given the nature of a Christian who has tasted of the heavenly gift, and themselves have taken the memorial weekly, observing the death on the cross for them. And when that has impacted them, and yet they turn away from that, and they choose the passing pleasures of this world in exchange for that, what judgment do you think worthy of that individual? Of me, when that's my story? Turn over to Second Peter chapter 2. Look in 2 Peter 2 and verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. You know what God is saying that He views His people that experience grace and the covenant and His blessings and who have walked in the light with God, who exchange light and instead choose darkness, he says, you're like an unclean thing. The dog, a scavenger, the eater of who knows what, and this unclean sow. God says, you've become an unclean thing. And you've exchanged that which is holy and your presence with me behind the veil for the unclean things of this world. 
Go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see the point that the writer's making for us? Moses' law, execution on the basis of the testimony of two or three witnesses. Christian, who has witnessed your confession and your baptism and your walk with the Lord and your covenant with Him who has witnessed it? Two or three witnesses? Verse 29, we have one witness, the Son of God who gave His blood for you. Witness number two, the Spirit of grace who has revealed the heart of God to you. And then thirdly, the God whose hands are open to bless or to judge. These are the two or three witnesses that condemn us. But as we're thinking about the fear of judgment, think about the return of Christ as well. And that coming day of judgment. And what that will look like for us if our heart is not right with Him. You know, we think sometimes and we speak today and Maybe I need to be careful with generalizations. Sometimes with generalizations, it's less general and more personal. But I've observed, let's say, that sometimes we assume that we will die and the world will go on. But the exception is if the Lord returns. You know, we'll say about if we die, if we end this life, end our road's journey, or if the Lord returns, as if that's the exception, that might be the afterthought. But you read through the New Testament And that actually has it flipped. They assumed that the Lord was returning. You know, as Paul would write to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we who are alive and remain. The assumption was the Lord is returning, and we are the ones who are going to experience and witness that return alive. Oh yeah, and the exception might be that we die. And maybe it's healthy for us if we have that kind of perspective instead. We often take for assumption and take for granted that we'll die, and after that judgment... And that the Lord's return is just some kind of afterthought or it's the exception to the rule. When Christ returns in judgment, have you ever thought about the various scenarios and the circumstances that people will be in that you might be in when the Lord returns and you hear that trumpet? You know, there will be people that are just doing normal things. Driving in the car, singing along loud to the radio. And the Lord returns. Brushing your teeth, the Lord returns. But you know, there will be people that when our Lord returns, they'll be in the middle of a funeral, and they'll be lowering a loved one into the earth, and they won't have been dead long. 
And when the Lord returns, there will be a marriage ceremony that's going on. But you also think about there are other situations in which the Lord will return in. You know, as the sun rises and it obscures part of the earth and shadow and other parts of the earth shine, people all over the world are rising and worshiping and assembling all over this world. When the Lord returns somewhere, there will be God's people meeting together when they hear that trumpet. And that will be very sweet. There will be people singing. There will be someone in their inner room praying to the Lord with Christ as the intercessor at the right hand of God, but yet He has now come with the trumpet sound. But you also have to understand that there will be other situations in which the Lord is going to return and find some of us. The Lord is going to come back in the middle of a marriage argument and harsh and ugly cutting words being exchanged, the trumpet sounds. There will be someone who is in the very act and process of trying to hide and cover up sin so that no one ever knows about it when the Lord returns. There will be someone who is watching and looking at pornography the very moment the Lord returns. There will be someone who is just minding their own business and they have wandered away from the Lord for years and this trumpet is the first time they thought about God in a long time. Where will you be? Where will I be when we hear that piercing trumpet call? You have no time. And the great deception of sin and of the hard heart is there is time if I so choose to make that an option later. You don't have that as an option. And your eternal destiny hinges upon you making it right with the Lord when you have the opportunity to do so. I don't think about a fourth and final reason for us to return, and that is God's grace, God's graciousness, and His patience. You know, we're told that the long-suffering of our Lord is actually grace. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that don't count Lord's patience and His delay as His slackness, but He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Every moment that this world stands, it is God's statement of faith and of belief and optimism in His creation that you can turn to Him. Think also of what's stated in Romans chapter 2. You know, here in Romans 2, Paul is addressing the Jews who have failed in their covenant with the Lord. And he's reflecting upon the common judgment that nonetheless falls to both Gentile and Jew. But look at how he words this in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. When we contemplate the rich blessings that God has given us, the physical ones, the spiritual ones, the ones in this family here at this church, that should draw us to Him. And what we are supposed to think is we are to weigh up, here is the world, here is what it offers, 
Here it's passing pleasures, and then I see the fruit of that. On the other hand, I have what God offers me. And we weigh it, and we contemplate it. And ultimately, the cross is what proves for us all time that God will accept us. That when we return to Him, He will accept us just as the Father received that prodigal son that decided, I will arise and go to my Father. I want to close by looking over with you in Isaiah chapter 55. As we are contemplating the goodness of God that calls us to repentance. You know, before we read this chapter and think about it, you know, sometimes what is an impediment with us and going to our fellow human beings to make things right, is sometimes it's the fault of the one who has been sinned against. And maybe if we've got just a real prickly character, if we're arrogant ourselves, and we're harsh, we can sometimes make it hard on other people and make their task more difficult to come to us and make things right, because they think that when they come, we're just going to bite their head off. And we're going to rub their nose in it. And we're going to make them understand how it is that they've sinned against us. And that can sometimes be an impediment. You don't have to worry about that with God. The moment that you turn around and you look for Him, even though in your mind you have been miles away from Him, He has been miles away from your thoughts, the second you turn and look heavenward, you will find that He has never left you. And He is right there, waiting and eager to bring you back. There's nothing scary about that. And look at how the Lord puts it in Isaiah chapter 55. Let's actually start in verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. The Lord's message still rings for us today. And that is, if you will look at yourself as God sees you. And not as you want to see yourself. And you will truly reflect upon yourself in the mirror of God's Word. And if you will recognize your spiritual impoverishment, the fact that you have no options no bargaining, no negotiation with God whatsoever. And if reflecting upon yourself in view of the cross, you recoil in revulsion from the sin of your soul, and you will come to Him, and you will say, I have nothing to offer you, Lord, nothing to give you, but the broken and contrite heart. That's what He accepts. That's the currency that He will acknowledge. And He will welcome you back. And what he says here is, I will make the sure covenant with you. Remember what I told David? Remember the promise that I made with him? That of your descendants, they will rule on my throne forever. And they will know sovereignty and rule with no limit and no end. And I've held him up as an example of what I will do for you. And I will bring you into that covenant as well. 
And ultimately, what we have set before us is the heir of David, Jesus Christ, and that cross that stands now as a testimony of God's welcoming of us for all time. And so the Lord's appeal in verses 6 and 7 is ours for you this morning. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, and He will have mercy on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. While you have time, before judgment, while God's grace is still your future rather than judgment, come to Him. Come to Him before your heart turns cold and before it won't listen anymore. And if your heart is still tender, you can have one or two pictures before you even today. You can return home or you can return back to your former ways and you can still have the regret. You can have the weight of guilt. You can have the pressure of sin still on you. Or you can choose to have release. And we all have been in that situation before when our guilt is such a burden. And it's so heavy. And you don't have to carry that. You don't have to bear that through life. You don't have to be torn, hypocritical, wearing the mask. You can be whole. You can be a single person enjoying the grace of our Lord. And we call upon you this morning, it may be that in a public way, that you need to come up and you need to throw yourself upon the mercy of God. And you want the prayers of this congregation. They want that. They pray for that. And heaven yearns for that. He's ready. Are you ready now? To finally be rid of that guilt. It may be the case that after this assembly, after this service, There need to be some serious conversations in homes or in cars on the way home. We need to make things right. Or it may be the case that just simply falling on your knees in your own private home and in your room and asking your Father to forgive you. Whatever the case may be, we appeal to you and we invite you to hear the Lord's call to repentance. Return to the Lord. And if this assembly can help you and to encourage you in song, we do so while we stand and sing to encourage you.